Daniel chapter 6, that's where I want you to go. And I want you to know these things. Daniel chapter 6 is in the Old Testament. No joking aside, it's in the Old Testament. We're in the, not the New Testament, we're in the Old Testament. What does testament mean? It means a covenant. There's an old covenant, the law. There's a new covenant, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So we're in the old covenant. And have you ever thought, or excuse me, the Old Testament, and if you're a lawyer, unfortunately, if you're a lawyer and you're sitting here, but you, you may have actually executed one of these, you might have executed a last will and testament. Anybody ever executed one of those? Yeah, I have. Listen, a testament, a last will and testament isn't, an, isn't effective until somebody dies. And that's the story of the Bible. It's the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it's foreshadowed. In the New Testament, it becomes reality. So we're in the Old Testament, and we're about at 539 B.C. or 538 B.C., and we're traveling through the Aramaic part of Daniel. Why do I say that? Because Daniel has uh, several chapters, 12 chapters, but... Chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew, like everything else in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and we talked about this last time. 2 through 7 is not in chronological order in Daniel. It's in a structure, a literary structure called a chiasm or parallelism. It's a form of a literary structure. In other words, two, chapter 2 and chapter 7 have are parallel. Chapter 3 and chapter, I'm going to get this wrong, and chapter 6, parallel. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, parallel. And in the middle there, in parallelism, in Hebrew poetry, remember Daniel was both Hebrew, but lived in the land of the Chaldeans, Babylon, so would know Aramaic, makes sense. He writes this in a form of parallelism or chiasm, which in the middle, the place in the middle is the, the climax, the climactic part of the whole thing. And what happens in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel? People, great kings, are humbled. And the Bible is telling us that God, New Testament Scripture, gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. I want you to let that sink in a little bit. God gives grace to the humble, his grace, but opposes the proud, which is contained in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that verse, but it's also in two places in the New Testament. This is important. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. What's humility? It's not denigrating yourself. Oh, I'm so bad. Oh, I'm so terrible. I'm a jerk. I'm an No, it's not denigrating yourself. It's thinking less of yourself. That's humility. And the Bible says that he gives grace to those who are humble. Now, for some of you, that might not be too big of a problem. But I don't know about that. Because God says in the Old Testament, there are several things he hates, and the first one is pride. So God has to get your attention. And he does. And so we are moving through Daniel. And we are now in chapter 6. Remember, 
I told you last time, and I think it's so true. If you want to understand the Old Testament, half of the battle or more, in my opinion, is just figuring out who the people are. And we are moving from the Babylonian um, uh, empire. The Babylonian empire was represented by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, greatest kingdom maybe that's ever been on earth in Babylon. And we talked about that. And in 605 BC, he went down and took out some of the cream of the crop, young people, including a kid named Daniel and some of his friends. That was in 605 BC. He came all the way from Babylon to the area of Judah and took those people out. And that's Daniel. And in 597 BC, here comes Nebuchadnezzar again, and he takes out from Judah more Jewish exiles. And in that group was the, a guy named Ezekiel. You ever heard of Ezekiel? Right. And then the death blow to Israel, or excuse me, to Jerusalem, that happened in 586 BC. I think personally, for my own study, and I say this all the time, if you know 586 BC, you know that date, and you understand what happened in 586 BC, it's a key. It unlocks much of the Old Testament. It helps you explain the Old Testament. Now, why in the world would God put his people into exile via an enemy? Well, in 2 Chronicles and other places, Leviticus 2, uh, also uh, 2 Chronicles, at the end of 2 Chronicles, it tells you, and then the other places, several other places, two main reasons. One, they didn't operate out of a uh, position of rest. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were to reap and harvest, reap, sow, or excuse me, sow, reap, harvest, however you want to say it, six years. But in the sixth year, they were to take double of the harvest and re rely upon the Lord in the seventh year and take a rest. There's no evidence that Israel ever did it for 490 years. And God said, oh, you didn't operate, you, you didn't listen to me. So I'm going to put you in exile for 70 years. And so he used an instrument, uh, an enemy as an instrument of his chastisement or discipline, and they went up there. Now, I want to tell you something very important. If you read the book of Jeremiah, another prophet, Jeremiah was ministering to the people who were left. There were some people, Jewish people, who were left in Judah and Jerusalem in that area. But as the people were being exiled, he said to them through God, God spoke this to him. Can you believe this? God said to Jeremiah to tell the people who are going into exile, don't resist the chastisement. He didn't say that, but here's what he did say. When you get there, build houses, get jobs, and learn and grow and live in Babylon. Interesting, right? And that's a picture. I mean, this really happened, but that's a picture of us as Christians not running away from the discipline of the Lord, but to lean into it because it has a purpose. By the way, in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, remember this, you come yoke up with me. Everybody know what a yoke is? My mom had one in our house, a yoke, an antique yoke. You yoke up with Jesus, 
and he will give you rest. So you, as New Testament, born-again, spirit-filled Christians, are to operate always out of a position of rest. But your rest isn't a festival or a day. If you want to celebrate those things, do it. Your rest is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can Sabbath all day long, every day. Rest. You're to operate out of that position. Hey, reason number two that they were exiled. Number two is their lives. God told them, I don't want you uh, to participate in idolatry. And they did in the most vile of ways. It was pervasive. And God said, that was another reason you're going to go into exile. Okay. All right. So Nebuchadnezzar is the one who did this. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, though, in chapter two of Daniel in chapter 2 of Daniel, has a dream, and Daniel explains it. By the way, Daniel went to uh, Babylon when he was young, somewhere between 50 and, or 15 and 20 years old. He was a young man. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's a statue or a figure, and each of the places on the body of the figure, the person, is a different metal. The head was of gold. It represented Babylon. God explained through Daniel, but then there was another, the chest and the arms were silver. And what it represented was each of these uh, four, four at the beginning, that's another story, uh, different metals that descended in order on that statue represented kingdoms. And the first one was Babylon. And the second one was the Medes and the Persians. And that's important for today's story, because as we continue through the book of Daniel, chapter 2 is this image, top to bottom. Nebuchadnezzar says, too bad, God. As soon as he receives the word that his uh, kingdom is going to be replaced by the Medes and Persian, he builds his own statute full of gold, all of gold, saying to God, you can't depose me. You can't kick me out. I'm going to live forever. Well, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story. And uh, actually, in that time, saved his friends, Daniel's friends, from the fiery trial. I'm just sort of repeating what, what is all in um, uh, Daniel here. So Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, uh, is humiliated, brought to uh, humility. And then in chapter 5, remember this, all of a sudden we just show up. Remember, part of knowing the Bible is knowing the players. And you go, Belshazzar, how is he the king? And we explained that last week. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So some time has run off between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And oh, by the way, remember, it's part of that literary structure. So it's not necessarily in chronological order. And we had the writing on the wall last week where we saw the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Babylonians would be wiped out by the Medes and the Persians. Remember that? And... There was this writing on the wall, this impenetrable city. And in one night, and that was in October of 539 BC, we know from extra biblical history, the Medes and the Persians overtook the city of Babylon and Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar is killed. Now look at the end of chapter five, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom 
being about 62 years old. And then look in verse 1, chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, I want you to know Daniel's now old. (laughs) No offense if, you know, right. Uh He's now in his 80s. He's an older gentleman But now he's been called on to do some things, and I want you to see something. He's serving now not in the Babylonian kingdom. He is actually serving Darius the Mede. But I want you to just turn to verse 28 of chapter 6. Just turn your page if you need to read this. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, you got to, now listen, you got to stick with me here because I'm going to run you through a little bit of history and take you to, to, take you to some scriptures that aren't in Daniel. And I want you to see this. Remember, the Medes and the Persians are to overtake Babylon. And now they've done it. In fact, in, in other words, you just, in two verses, the end of five, the beginning of uh, chapter six, you've just seen chapter two, the beginning of chapter two come to fruition. Babylon's off the scene. Now here we have the Medes and the Persians. Everybody tracking with me? So we got to figure out who Darius is. Who Darius is. He's a Mede. But it's been debated all throughout the ages And here are the different views. One view is that this is a fictitious character and that David, uh, or excuse me, Daniel got this mixed up and mistaken. But that doesn't really fit because David has always been correct on every other detail. And in fact, in verse 28, he talks about there being somebody separate from Cyrus. You all tracking? Now remember, we talked about this. Belshazzar... Last chapter, they couldn't find in the extra biblical record, so everybody said Daniel was a sham up until 1874 when they found the Nabonidus cylinder, which details who Belshazzar is. So there are critics of the Bible who talk about this, and they attack the Belshazzar thing, And then they attack this Darius thing and say, oh boy, that's fictitious. I don't believe that's true. Daniel was correct in everything else. Listen to this. There's a guy named Gubero. He was a extra biblical historical character that Cyrus, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, Cyrus was the big cheese. He's the guy you want to focus on in this prophecy, and yet we encounter Darius the Mede. But Cyrus is the big guy. And Cyrus was out away from Babylon at the time that this happened, apparently, and was fighting away from Babylon. And so he set a, uh, a, an administrator, a supervisor, over the city of Babylon. And extra-biblical accounts show us that it was a man named Gubero who was 62 years old when he was appointed. Did you catch that? 
How old was Darius when he was appointed? 62. He lasted for only about a year, and then he died in some wars and some battles. And you don't really see this Darius, by the way, if I haven't confused you enough. There's another Darius we encounter in Ezra. We'll save that for another time. But this Darius we never really see again. So some people believe this was a man, the man named Gubero who has been established by extra-biblical um, uh, uh, you know, accounts. Or here's another popular view, that Darius is just another name for Cyrus of the Persian, or Cyrus the Persian, because some translate chapter 6, verse 28, not Dan, or excuse me, Darius and Cyrus. Some people translate it Darius even Cyrus. Okay, I've confused you enough. There's this guy named Darius, and he's part of the Medo-Persian kingdom. He was doing something at the time that Cyrus is away. Why am I, um, why am I harping on the fact that there was a guy named Cyrus? Okay, time out. Just hang with me for a minute. I promise you this has an an important point. Here's why. Let's go back to Isaiah. Go to your left in the book. I read some of this to you. Go, go to your left in the Old Testament. And I want to tell you something. Isaiah was written approximately 150 years before the events of Daniel 6 happened. Everybody with me? And Isaiah gets this prophecy it says this. Hold on one second here. Sorry. Uh, yes, here it is. Uh, what's that? Oh, didn't I not tell you? Oh, well, you should know. <laughs> Go to Isaiah 44. Hold on. <laughs> That's a good point. Okay. Uh, uh, we're in verse 25. Sorry about that. Here it is. Isaiah 44, verse 25. Well, let's do 44. Th 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers. That's interesting because Babel is in Babylon, but oh well. And drives diviners mad who turns wise men backwards. Speaking of those diviners or divination people, who were used in Babylon and makes their knowledge foolish. 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste place, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now watch this. Is this almost too hard to believe? If, this is supernatural in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus... Cyrus, he hasn't been born yet, folks. If you're reading Isaiah at the time that the prophecy, or if Isaiah is telling you the prophecy at the time that Isaiah was getting the prophecy, you're like, who's Cyrus? 
Where did he come from? I have no idea. And look, it says that God is going to use him as a shepherd. And he shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, think about it. In the Old Testament, there's a temple on a foundation. To think that the temple and the foundation would be waylaid and gone was unthinkable. And then to announce a person's name who's actually going to, in some way, orchestrate the rebuilding of the temple, it's unthinkable. The temple's not going to go away. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, verse 1, chapter 45, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Unbelievable. To subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I'll go before you. Make it, make uh, uh, the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, etc., etc. Now, folks, That was written 150 years prior to 539 BC. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So could it have been, just think about this, as Cyrus has his people, Gubero or whoever you think Darius is in the city, is it possible that when and if Cyrus came down into Babylon to oversee what was going on by his administrators, that Daniel himself, is it possible that Daniel himself might have shown him this prophecy? And you're like, well, why are you saying that? Well, do me a favor. And you might have to look this up in the table of contents. Turn to chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. Turn to chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. What is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? It's the rebuilding of the walls and the temple and all that sort of thing when the Babylonian exile people come back from Babylon. That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Now watch this. Incredible how the Bible fits together. Verse 1, chapter 1 of Ezra. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, (laughs) it all fits together. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, go rebuild. I mean, that's what the letter says. That's incredible, folks. This is incredible stuff. He's very aware that Solomon's temple had been plundered by Nebuchadnezzar and that there was this prophecy that says, I, Cyrus, am going to be an important element in getting the temple rebuilt by a Gentile king. This is amazing stuff. You all tracking with me? Now, if you go to Jeremiah, go over there. The book of Jeremiah. I know it's confusing, but if you study this and you think about this, you're going to put together in your mind and orient yourself to a lot 
of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, you all quote it for one verse. I know you do. But we ain't going to focus on that verse. Daniel knew. He knew. It seems to me, I'll take you there in one minute. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it looks like for a year, one whole year, before Daniel 6, Daniel studied the scriptures, especially the book of Jeremiah. It says it right there in Daniel 9. Listen, I think he studied this. I'll just read you uh, verse 10. Oh, not 11. Look at this, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I'll visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Here you have Daniel studying the Bible or the scriptures, especially Jeremiah. It actually says it in Daniel 9. He knows this. He's counting the years, and he knows he's at the end of the time. And then he sees the Babylonians get wiped out, and here come the Medes and the Persians. What must Daniel have been thinking? He must have been thinking, just like these people talked about today, the words of God are true and right and could never be stopped. And our God is a faithful God and will do what he says he's going to do. You imagine how his heart must have popped out of his chest when Daniel put all these things together and went, whoa, we serve a big God. Okay, now we get to verse (laughs) 1 of Daniel chapter 6. That's where we are. Isn't it amazing? We serve a big God, but here it pleases Darius, verse 1, to set over the kingdom these 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And then he took three governors of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel was one of three people who oversaw the 120 different governors around the country so that the, uh, uh, the king would suffer no loss. Oh, man, this blesses my heart so much. You ever heard somebody say, you know what? Uh, golly, I just, uh, I'm just praying that the Lord would be able to put me into full-time ministry. And I always laugh when somebody says that because I'm like, you already are in full-time ministry. I mean, whether you work as a lawyer, well, that's kind of hard to do. But anyway, we manage. But if you work as a lawyer, a doctor, you're a teacher, you're a stay-at-home mom, uh, whatever you do, you're a salesperson, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, whatever. It doesn't matter. You're in full-time ministry. Do you catch this? Here you got this guy named Daniel who comes up as a young man and he serves under a Babylonian king. And the king makes him go to Babylon University for three years. And really, what Daniel was there for was to exhibit and to display in Babylon the grace and the beauty and the power of the Lord. Because what could Daniel do by the grace of God? He could interpret dreams. And God gave him this gift so that God would be glorified in Babylon. And then we don't hear about Daniel for a long, long time. 
He's probably by now, when we're reading about him now, somewhere close to 90. But you know what Daniel did not do? He didn't give up. He didn't put his life on the shelf. He kept a dynamic, alive, vital relationship with God. We'll see that here in a minute. And when he was called upon again, a second time, he didn't moan and complain, nobody pays attention to me, I'm old, da, 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 da. No, you know what? He just kept his consistent, disciplined love life kindled with the Lord. And when the Lord called him again, he was like, good, I'm ready and able. And the, wait a minute, there are Medes and Persians? No matter. Wherever you send me, Lord, you're the captain. I'll go do it. In fact, Lord, if you want to send me to a place of authority and supervision for a pagan Gentile king. We need to hear this, man. You let me do it. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to do the best job I can do to help you, look at this, save money. That was his job. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a missionary, so to speak, but he was a missionary. Here is this man who kept himself alive in the Lord. When called upon, didn't whine and moan, said, yes, here I come. I'll do whatever you ask. Oh, you need me to use my financial sense and my ability to keep people from skimming off the top and to be an administrator? I'll do it, and I'll do it to glorify you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Everybody is in full-time ministry if you're a Christian. You're always, always in full-time ministry. So here he is, and he was called upon to help the king suffer no loss. Now, I want you to see something, and I'm going to ruffle your feathers. He didn't say, oh, you're a Democrat? I ain't doing it. I want you to see that. Oh, you're a Republican? Great, I'm in. That didn't even come across his thinking The Lord had placed him there, had given him gifts. He said, I'll do it because you asked me to, Lord. He didn't try to change the system. He didn't try to do-do-do-do-do-do. Here's what he did. Watch. It tells you in the next verse. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps. And if you stop reading right there, you miss it. So he distinguishes himself, and that means somehow, some way, by the power of God, he watched, he was set apart, he, w- he, he stood out. In fact, the word sort of means bright in dark. He was a bright light. What are you called to be in this world, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Salt and light. So he goes and he's distinguishing himself above the governors and satraps. Of all the three, the three supervisors, Daniel's the man he can be counted on. Because why? He was intellectually amazing. He was responsible. No, it doesn't say any of that. I'm sure he was. I'm not saying he wasn't. I want you to see this, though, because there was an excellent spirit in him. And I'm convinced Because in the Hebrew, you wouldn't capitalize Holy Spirit. I'm convinced what they're talking about here now is that the Holy Spirit had come upon him and given him ability, God is able, ability and wisdom and uh, 
power to do his job. You see how practical the Holy Spirit is? He gives you wisdom to know what to do in a situation that you wouldn't know otherwise. I mean, he just gives it to you. And it was okay here for, then, for David to, be, to rise up because the Holy Spirit gave him practical wisdom that would help him at work. Isn't that amazing? Now, on top of that, there was something about, there had to have been, it's talking about this, I'm convinced, something sweet about his spirit. There was this love. He loved people that didn't even love him. There was this joy in Daniel's life. He didn't say, oh, my mom and my dad, they were back in Bab- or excuse me, in Jerusalem, and you took me out, and then, how dare you? He lived for the Lord right there in Babylon, which now is Medo-Persian territory, and he served the king, and he served him with joy and gentleness and kindness. Whoa. Can you imagine being kind to that king or those kings, the ones that succeeded, the ones that basically ripped you out of your homeland? And now you, no, he said, Lord, you've sent me here. If I'm not here, who's here? I'm going to serve you in sweetness and love and the power of the spirit. Oh, by the way, on top of that, what the Holy Spirit gives you that. But on top of that, guess what else the Holy Spirit does? He'll distribute to you gifts. And here... The gifts were for to help and to prop up the Lord Jesus, well, the Lord God himself. And in our time now on this side of the, uh, uh, the cross, uh, the Lord Jesus. I want you to see that, man. I want you to see that, that what you do matters. You've been planted there. I understand some jobs are hard, but don't complain. Here's what you do. If you want another job, quit complaining. Just be the light while you're there. If you want another job, put your resume in and try. Nothing wrong with that. But while you're there, be the best worker. Because the Bible says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Your work is worship. My work is worship. Everybody good? And here, he says there is this great spirit in him. And the king gave thought. He was so good that the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now, remember, this is a Jewish exile in a medieval Persian kingdom. Can you imagine what the other two administrators must have thought? Well, they probably were jealous. And the other 120 satraps or governors, what they must have thought? Well, they were probably jealous. So the governors and satraps satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge of fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Oh my. Now this was, didn't mean that Daniel was sinlessly perfect, but there was this thing in Daniel where he had what we will call integrity or character, integrity or character. One author says this, reputation is what men think you are, while character is what God knows you are. Integrity, character. Reputation is what men think you are, while character is what God knows you are. Uh, 
Some have said, haven't they, that uh, the most important time of your life is the time you spend alone with God. And so the question becomes, are you finding that time to spend alone with the Lord? Don't raise your hand, but raise your hand in your heart if you're saying, that's not me. I haven't been able to do that. Well, here, look, because of this vital dynamic relationship, we're going to see that here in a minute. There was no charge or error or fault found in him. In some translations, it says there was no negligence in him. He didn't fail to do anything that would be inappropriate. But listen, he didn't act in a way that was inappropriate outside of what God would want or do or say. Get it? He wasn't even negligent. <laughs> That's hard to do. But he had the power of God, and so do you. So they, he had this reputation. They couldn't find no charge of fault because he was faithful, nor was there any or fault found in him. And I wonder, if, you, if the people at work talked to, about you, what would they say? What would they say about me? Yeah, they could say, oh, okay, he loves the Lord and, you know, goes outside during lunch and does a Bible study, and that's weird, but okay, maybe they could say that. But what would they say about your work? What would they say about negligence or active work? Well, they couldn't find any fault in him, and not only just in his work life, but in his personal life as well. This was a man of character and integrity. And these men said, well, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of God. That's verse 5. Can you imagine having such a great testimony that the jealous ones who were trying to find something against you couldn't find anything? I mean, think about it. If you're a politician, they're going to find something, right? They'll scour and scour and scour until they find something, both sides of the aisle. Here they couldn't find anything against him, so they know that they got to manufacture a charge. And how do you get somebody that has a stellar character, loves the Lord? Well, here's how you do it. You pit a law of man against the law of God. And so they come up with this. So the governors and the satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, boy, isn't jealousy of the world, hatred of the world a rough thing? Here's why. They come in this group dynamic, and they pile on. Hey, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together. Now, that's a lie. You know why? Because Daniel probably wasn't consulted here. <laughs> Daniel is number one guy. He wasn't consulted. Consulted together to establish a royal statute. And to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O kin, king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now you understand why they would do this. Think about it. They're a Medo-Persian kingdom that's just came in and overtaken the Babylonians. And so in their worldly wisdom to pit the law of God against the law of man and to oust Daniel, they come up with something that seems sort of good. For 30 days now, everybody has to ask from you for everything. By the way, who would want that? But whatever. Anyway, so petition any God or man for 30 days shall be cast into this den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing. 
So it can't be changed. Now, this is a little different if you study the history of Babylon and the legislative ways that they operated, and now the Medes and the Persians, which you also see this same thing in Esther, Nebuchadnezzar didn't need to like write down a law and then not be able to change it. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar just said, we'll change the law because I'm the law. These people had some sort of like constitutional legislative process, which many people believe is why there's the head of gold and then the chest and arms of silver in descending order because the, the autonomy of the dictator lessened as you went through the kingdoms. I'm just throwing that in. Anyway, so they've done this. He signs this written decree. Oh, king, establish the decree, sign it so it, that it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which doesn't alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And he, you know, there's like this flattery and this lying. And boy, does that happen in the world. If you stand out for the Lord Jesus, now in our day, if you stand out for the Lord Jesus, you're going to irritate the world. You're going to bring people who, even though you do good, good stuff, they're going to hate you for it. And you see it all over the news and all the different um, uh, things that we talk about. And not only they're, they're going to trump things up, sometimes they even don't tell the truth against people of righteousness. But whatever, you don't see him complaining. He knew it came with the territory. So here's what happened when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. Here comes the test of loyalties. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees. He went down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Now, I want to wipe something out of your mind that you've learned your whole life. Daniel didn't do this in defiance. If you think Daniel did this in defiance, like a protest against that law, you missed the whole point of this story. You're like, what? See, Daniel did this all the time, every day, consistently his whole godly life. And no law or anything like that was going to alter that. And it wasn't because he was pounding his fist on the table or yelling at this political party or that political party or this king or this kingdomship. No, he had a dynamic, alive relationship with the God of the universe because the Bible says, as was his custom since early days. You see, if this happened on a Monday, he did that on Sunday. He did that on Saturday. He did that on Friday. He did that on Thursday and all the way back. This was his life. His life, and this is the key to Daniel in the lion's den. If you miss this, you miss it all. He was developing his life with the Lord, not so he could get in or out of a den. He was developing his life with the Lord because of the beauty of who God is and all that God had done for him. And out of a heart response, he said, 
as his custom, I'm going to meet with you three times a day. Now, this isn't a prescription here for a formula to get you out of trouble. And I sense that many people, when they read Daniel in the lion's den, say, if I apply that formula, that formula, that formula, you know the lion's den that I'm in right now, he's going to take me out. Well, I'm convinced some people got thrown in the lion's den who were devout Christians and they never came out. But what this is telling you is that Daniel was a man who knew the word. What do I mean? Psalm 55, 17, David said the same thing. I'll pray every morning, noon, night. Daniel knew this and he was like, whoa, that's such a great idea because now I get to meet with my Lord and I'm going to do this. Watch this. I'm going to kneel down and pray, and I'm going to face Jerusalem. Where does facing Jerusalem come from? Well, see, when Solomon, earlier in the Bible, dedicated the temple, he told everybody, look towards Jerusalem, the place of the temple, and pray, okay? And pray out that way. And so he's getting it from there. So you, you see, he was a man of the word. He knew the word. And so this isn't a prescription for how to pray. This is just a dynamic, vital relationship that he was going to do no matter what because he couldn't get along without his Lord. You see that? And so he'd already done it this way, and he wasn't going to be a hypocrite, so he just kept doing it. I'm convinced this wasn't a protest. This was a, watch it, it was a way of life. So he's praying, he's in the upper room, his windows are open toward Jerusalem because that's the way of the temple, that's where the presence of God was in the Old Testament, and he, watch, he knelt down on his knees. Now, do you have to kneel to pray? Of course not. The Bible has all kinds of different postures when praying. You know this, right? Many people pray with their hands up, looking up to the Lord, eyes open. Folks, you don't have to have your eyes closed to pray. We had somebody leave the church because we were praying up here and our eyes were open. Okay? That's not what the Lord's after when you pray. Now, having said that, I have to tell you something. There's something about kneeling in prayer. It's very humbling. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. It's... The form, watch, isn't it the form one pastor said that the beggar takes when he's begging? What are you when you're praying? Hallisby says in his book, you're just inviting the Lord into your helplessness. You're a beggar. You need the Lord. We need the Lord. And so there are many people in the Bible too. Solomon, Ezra, the one we're talking about now, Jesus, not always, but some, Stephen, Peter, Paul, many others who knelt when they prayed. Here, that's what uh, Daniel did. Now, I hesitate to say this, but I I'm going to tell it to you a little bit, or I'm going to tell it to you anyway, and that's this. Do you, do you remember that guy that landed the plane in the Hudson? Sully, I forget his full name. Oh, some of you know it. That's cool. Sully said this when they asked him, how, how in the world could you first have the nerve and the daring to do that and then actually execute landing that plane in the Hudson River after the birds got in the engine? 
the miracle on the Hudson, all rescued, 150 people and four crew members. Here's what he said. For 42 years, I had been making small, regular deposits into the bank of my experience, education, and training. And on that day, the balance was significance, or the balance that was significant on the day that I landed that plane, I could make a large withdrawal. That's Sully talking about how he landed the plane. Now, the reason I hesitate to say that to you is I fear some of you are going to run out of here and get, you know, the whole thing, and you're going to say, I'm going to do this for 40 days, and Lord, at the end of this 40 days, you better do what I asked you to do. You laugh. That's sometimes how we go in prayer. See, that's not what you're doing in prayer. You're not bossing the Lord around. You're inviting the Lord into your helplessness. You're, look, you're getting to know the Lord in a deeper and more powerful way so that when the storms of life come, it's you and the Lord and you're close to him and you can talk to him and there's a place that you can go. That's prayer. It's not bossing the Lord around. It is making small regular deposits, but it's making small re- uh, regular deposits of love and care with God who loves you. It's not bossing him around and whipping uh, out all the things that you need every time the way you want it to be done. That's not prayer. If you haven't gotten the book, Prayer by O. Hallisby, well, we ordered more and it's coming or go online and get it. It'll revolutionize your prayer life. Well, the men assembled and found Daniel praying. That's so funny. They knew where to find Daniel. They knew he'd be there. (laughs) They thought they were tricking him. And they knew he would be there. And I wonder, do, the, do, the peop, do people know out in the world, wherever you've been placed or planted, do they know where you'll be? Do they know the consistency of your devotion and love for the Lord for everything that he's done? Do they know where you'll be on Sunday mornings? Do they know you'll be here? Or do they think you might be at the hockey game or the, or the soccer game or the basketball game? What? Trying to get your kid a scholarship. Just being honest. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Hey, king, haven't you signed a decree that every man who petitions any god except you, O king, shall be into the lion's den? And the king said, well, the thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persian, which it doesn't alter. So they said before the king, that Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard. Watch, skip down to 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. That's how great an impact Daniel had on this new guy. Darius the Mede, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he thought about it and worked on it until the sun went down, but he couldn't deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute with the king to establish can be changed. So the king gave the command, brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually... I just want you to circle that in your Bible or make a note in your notes. You don't take religion off like when you go on your vacation. (laughs) Or you don't take religion off on Friday nights so you can go do this or do that. (laughs) See, if when you're in a vital relationship with the Lord, in our case, yes, through Jesus Christ, 
It's just, he's our all in all. And, and so you and I and we, we serve him continually, just like Daniel does. He'll deliver you. Then a stone was brought. Does that sound familiar? And was laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. The, the king is concerned, man. And no musicians were brought before him, and his sleep went from him. He couldn't sleep, so he got up early, and he ran to the den of the lions. This man had made an amazing impact on the king. And think about it again. He's a Mede and a Persian, and he's not a Jew. And it didn't matter to Daniel. He loved people right where they were. And the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the, or excuse me, he went to haste to the den of the lions. Verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice. He really wanted Daniel to be okay. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? <laughs> what a funny thing. What happens if he hadn't? You could hear the lions chewing, I guess. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, just like in chapter 3, out of the fiery furnace and the friends, and he shut up the mouth of the lions, shut the lion's mouth, so that they may not have, or may, uh, that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was ever was found on him. Now I want you to mark this because he believed God. And this is a big, big theme throughout the book of Daniel. He didn't believe Daniel. Daniel didn't believe in his own faith. I want you to catch that. It's very subtle. Oh, if I just conjure up another faith, I'll make the Lord do what I say to do. No, here's what da uh, Daniel did, just like his friends. I'm just going to trust in the power of God who's able, but just like his friends. But if not, he's still the Lord. <laughs> so he believed in his God, and the king gave the commandment, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the lion's den, them, their children, their wives, their lions, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. I think that's put in there because many people say the lions may not have been hungry or were already fed. That ain't true. And don't get mad at God. It's Darius who put those people in the lion's den. Then Darius wrote this, just like Nebuchadnezzar did had a great impact to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And I want to just stop right here. See, that doesn't change, folks. Darius wrote this, but that's true. The Bible tells us that every knee is going to bow. Philippians 2, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the Bible is telling us that men will tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. We'll have reverence and respect. We either do it before or after <laughs> Jesus comes again. 
And so if you've never placed your fear or reverence or trusted in the God of this Daniel, who's the same God today, well, here's the issue. The Bible tells you and me, if that's not you, if you could say, well, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. Well, the Bible tells you that you and I, we, all of us in this room are sinners. The Bible says we're all sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short. And for all who fall short of the glory of God, here's the penalty or here's the wages, spiritual death. You and I, without Christ in our life, will be spiritually separated from God for all eternity. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, God sent his son Jesus and said, watch, look, and follow him. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that Jesus defeated death and he was perfectly righteous. He fulfilled the law so that the perfect Passover lamb, the spotless lamb of God died on the cross as God poured out his wrath on the sin that was imputed to Christ. But he didn't stay there. (laughs) He rose again and for all who trust in him, see, The Bible says that if you believe in the Son, you shall, not may, you shall have eternal life. If you believe in your heart, this is the thing that you believe. You believe it, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, died for us, and rose again. The Bible says you might be saved. Nope. The Bible says you shall be saved. In other words, you've now just traveled for somebody who's done that, from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. Praise the Lord. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. You're in Christ's kingdom. That's what the gospel is. And it was no different then. Look, that men would tremble in fear before the God of Israel. Why? Because he is the living God and he's steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which will never be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He's delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now watch, for those who surrender their life to Jesus Christ, you're the richest person in the world. (laughs) You have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, the book of Ephesians say. You may have money or you may not here in this world, but you're rich because you have all the riches of his grace available to you. The Bible says when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you're already seated in the heavenly places. The spirit, the, the spirit of the living God comes to live in your life as a down payment guaranteeing your entrance to heaven. Oh, what glory. The slate of your sins, it's all been wiped away, past, present, and future, and now you have the righteousness of Christ, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You get his righteousness, watch this, so that that shortfall that you have between the glory of God and your life is bridged but not because of anything you did, but because of the imputed righteousness that he grants to you. Oh my. 
But here's the question. Will you humble yourself and ask the Lord to come into your life and say you need a Savior, like I need a Savior and we need a Savior? Maybe you will, but the Lord gives you the ability to say no. But today, if you're here and you don't know the Lord in this way, he's saying, here's your opportunity. Don't miss it. So as we close the book on Daniel 6, we're going to do, uh, make a big shift from Daniel 6 to Daniel 7 all the way through Daniel 12. We've been talking now about his historical life and some of the things that we've seen, and we've been engaging in prophecy a little bit, but now we switch from Daniel's life to God's program for the rest of the age and the ages to come. And we're going to see that as we move through Daniel 7 through Daniel 12. Here's what I want you to do. Are you going to, uh, yeah, you guys come up and we're going to do a song here at the end, a worship song. And if the Lord stirs your heart and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and you want to do that after the service, just come up and talk with me or somebody else up here. And uh, if you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, hey, come up too. If you are have other prayer requests and you don't want to leave without praying for them, come up here. We'll pray for you or with you. And then tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to be praying here and corporately if you want to join. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this word. The funny part about this is, Lord, I pray we say, oh, we will, could we ever be a Daniel? And the answer is, yeah. We all should be Daniels or Daniela's. But Lord, the Spirit of God does amazing things in our life, power and strength and love and joy and gentleness and kindness. Lord, you give gifts, and so we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of the people here tonight or today. And also, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know if they've been saved or they're going to heaven, Lord, we pray that they would come up after and we'd pray together. In Jesus' name, amen.